Husky fans. This is Max Cerullo, and you are listening to Yes, UConn, the podcast where we dive deep into some of the greatest UConn basketball games ever played. And uh, today we're going to go into a game that's a little bit lesser known, but uh, I think maybe one of the most underappreciated UConn games ever, and uh, perhaps the one that's aged the best of any of the old games that we've uh, been covering. Uh, so Matt McDonough will be joining me again today. Uh, Matt, who uh, appeared on the first episode, helped me launch the show when we did the Cardiac Kemba episode. Um, he was my daily campus partner in crime. We covered the 2011 National Championship season together. And uh, today we'll be discussing the game against San Diego State in the Sweet 16, the big Kemba Walker versus Kawhi Leonard matchup. So uh, first things first, uh, Matt, how's it going? Thanks again for coming back. It's good, Mac. Thanks for having me uh, once again. I appreciate it, and I uh, hope all our listeners are safe and healthy. Yes, indeed. Uh, we are, I don't know, at this point, what, three weeks, a month almost into uh, the coronavirus quarantine. Um, it's it's not great. Uh, it's it's the the world is uh, definitely not not a in a good spot right now. But um, having a chance to rewatch this game brought me back a lot of joy, and I'm sure it did for you too. Um, this game was awesome. <laughs> like I, I feel like most people, because it's kind of in the middle of their tournament run, most people have forgotten just how fun this game was. But just in the grand scheme of things, this might have been one of the most interesting uh, college basketball games played in 2011, just across the country, especially if you go back and watch it now. Um, but just uh, real quick before I kind of delve into why that is, uh, Matt, what was your you know thoughts rewatching this game? Well, I mean, to go off what you said, it, it, it's kind of crazy now um, seeing the guys who played in the game where they're at in their NBA careers, some of, of whom have overseas careers. Um, the coaches in the game. It was really a, a pretty big heavyweight fight, um, especially, too, uh, with the season canceled this year. Obviously, San Diego State was having one of the better years um, in their uh, school history this season, and at the time, they were also having uh, their best year at the moment in their uh, history. It was their seventh NCAA tournament, but it was also the first season they had been ranked. So it was kind of like bookends seeing San Diego State on the rise, both modern day and back then nine years ago. Yeah. So with this uh, this game, we, we mostly wanted to talk about it for two. Well, for three reasons. One, uh, the game itself was amazing. Um, it may have been the best game Kemba Walker ever played at UConn. Uh, two, uh, the pro part, like just in terms of the future pros, this game had it all. You have Kemba Walker and Ka- Kawhi Leonard, who are you know. Kemba has the uh, the most points of any player uh, who was drafted in 2011 and has obviously enjoyed a terrific pro career. And uh, Kawhi Leonard is a pretty good argument that he's the best player in the world right now. Uh, you know, he's won two NBA championships. Uh, and uh, I mean, what he did with Toronto last year was just incredible. So to have those those two on the court together um, was one of the best uh, matchups of future pros of any, you know, of anybody, you know, in the country that season. Um, and the third reason I wanted to talk about it is because, Matt, you and I had a fairly interesting experience uh, both getting to and covering this game. Do you want to uh, share with the, the audience why that is? Well, I mean, we, we missed our initial flight, so we were a few minutes late to the game, um, which at the moment uh, wasn't as funny. Uh, but now, nine years later, it's hard not to look back and laugh at it. It was like really, honestly, something out of a movie. Like we quite literally made a mad dash across the country. And I don't mean that metaphorically, like straight up, like <laughs> from Connecticut to Anaheim and every minute counted. And, 
Yeah, we end up basically just by the the skin of our teeth making it there. I want to say it was right around the 10 minute mark or something like that of the first half. So, you know, we missed a little bit of the game, but not really that much of the game. And um, yeah, just like it was just incredible an incredible scene to walk into. I don't know if this was your experience, but we we got there right after San Diego State had made their first big run and this crowd was crazy. Like it was the most intimidating road environment I had ever seen covering Yukon basketball. And I mean, we didn't cover very many road games, so it's not like we saw a lot, but this game was played in the Honda Center, which is where the Anaheim Ducks play. So it's like a, a legit like basically an NBA arena and this place was packed to the brim with San Diego state fans who had all driven whatever an hour, an hour and a half up from San Diego to the game. And it was nuts. And we just walk in there right after they make their first big run and the place is going crazy. And you and I, at least my experience was just like, Oh my God, where are we right now? Is that, what do you, what do you remember? Yeah, that? No, I'm right there with you. Cause even obviously rewatching, I don't know if that I had ever rewatched it from the tip off. So it was funny seeing, um, you know, the quarters uh, behind each bench uh, as, and then the opposite side of the sideline. So, you know, it was almost quadrants of the four uh, sections of fans. So there it was a late arriving crowd, not just because it was in the LA metropolitan area, but because Duke and Arizona was the second game. Um, and the seats being red with like black backs, those are the colors of San Diego State. Um, so it's hard to tell, you know, between the fans and the lower, lower bowl. And um, Vern Lundquist even mentioned how it was a late arriving crowd. But like you said, initially the announcers didn't know. But when you walk in there and San Diego State had just made their run, the upper deck was packed with Aztec fans and alums. And they were loud. And again, the school colors blended into the seats. It was like you were walking in on floor level of like a concert and fans cheering from the upper deck right on top of you. It was a crazy environment. And, uh, you know, that's, that helped San Diego state, um, a lot. Uh, even when, you know, UConn made their run when there was some questionable foul calls, you could hear booze. It was not a true road environment, but as close to road environment as you could get, um, without being in their, the school's home city. I mean, it, it was, yeah, it was pretty intense for sure. And um, so at this point, I mean, kind of just to kind of set the stage for this game, uh, UConn at, by now has a seven game win streak. They'd won the five and five, uh, you know, five games in five days to win the Big East tournament. And they uh, won both of their early round games in uh, Washington, D.C. They you know took care of business against Bucknell. They beat Cincinnati in the round of 32. And so, you know, the the matchup against San Diego State, they're the number two seed. They'd only lost two games all season. Both of those games actually to Jimmer Fredette and Brigham Young, actually, which is was brought up a few times. And uh, so this was like a very much like, OK, this is the this is the real test. Like San Diego State could win this game. And then I don't know about you, but I didn't really appreciate just how big a road test this would be, because when you walk in there, you really appreciate just how much the odds were stacked against UConn in terms of the environment and you know, you're, you're playing Kawhi Leonard. Like he, I mean, he wasn't Kawhi Leonard yet, but I mean, he was widely considered one of the better players in the country and you know that, and the rest of his team wasn't half bad either. So like that was, you know, it was definitely not a gimme, but you know, rewatching the game, I forgot how good Kemba was and, uh, and Jeremy Lamb too. Jeremy, he might've even been better, like efficient efficiency wise. Like he hardly missed a basket the whole game that both of them were tremendous. 
Um, so just a, it was a delight to watch. I don't know about if you had that same experience. Just, it was so, well, so much I mean, fun. I mean, you're right. The thing with uh, Leonard was he was, you know, Fredette got all the accolades, not only in the Mountain West Conference over Leonard, but also nationally over Kemba. And, um, you know, Leonard was still an All-American. You know, he still left after this game. So he was, a, a, well, I think it was a 15th pick after his sophomore year. He was still, you know, a highly touted player. And, uh, you know, the the environment, too, not only the buildup, it was the only Sweet 16 matchup between top 10 teams. Like, Poles had San Diego State number 6 or number 5. They had UConn number 8 or number 9 at the time. And, um, you know, UConn had played. They played George Mason in 06, Elite 8 in D.C., you know, a Virginia school. They had played UCLA in, I think, Oakland and uh, I think, Ray Allen, uh, his last game maybe, or – his second last season, um, I think that was an Elite Eight game, if I'm not mistaken, as well as 98, Greensboro, UNSC in the Elite Eight. So, like, UConn has gotten kind of the tough draws with these um, pseudo-road matchups and then say tournament. But if you looked at it just from the neutral perspective of um, Kemba uh, with Lamb as his co-partner, uh, Kemba had the better game, but Lamb had arguably more timely baskets. And then Leonard, who, um, which I'm sure you're going to go into, you know, it, it's tough because looking back at the foul trouble that Leonard got into early really did get him out of his rhythm, and he kind of never really got into his own. Yeah, he, yeah, that was the other surprising thing. Like when I, I rewatched the game, you know, Kawhi doesn't make as big an impact as you expect, but there's like a handful of moments where you just see the flashes and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right, that's Kawhi Leonard. And, but he, yeah, the foul trouble. He gets a t- he gets a technical foul in the first like four minutes of the game, which was very, which was really surprising because you know Ka- Kawhi Leonard is known for being pretty stoic and you know doesn't really get up or down really with anything, and yeah, just kind of randomly starts like talking smack to Alex Oriaki. I, I don't know, man. He he must have just had a way of getting under people's skin. Maybe who knows? But that was a little odd. Um, the game itself, uh, very close throughout. I mean, um, there were, by the looks of it, 11 lead changes, seven ties. You know, they were most of the way kind of going back and forth. Um, U- UConn had two big runs where they took big leads, and then San Diego State would kind of, you know, pull ahead, uh, pull even. Uh, the, you know, the, the Aztecs took the lead early, and then UConn made their big run at the end of the first half. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was... Um, it was interesting. So, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with our little uh, our little adventure across the country, or do you want to talk about the game and then kind of get into the experience yeah, around it? Yeah, I mean, because it is comical. If I'm if I'm correct, I think so. I know what the flight change, and you obviously um, were, was always in our travels, whether it was a Fiesta Boat of Phoenix with uh, you and Colin my twin brother uh covering football obviously or it was me and you in the spring with basketball you were always the point man um and you know uh, could handle it a little bit better booking the flights and the itinerary so um i remember i kind of deferred to you where you were on the line with the airline but uh, usually but i don't know if i had booked this but i just remember both of us like uh, once we missed that first flight, like frantically trying to get on 
in touch with the airlines. Yeah, I was going to say, so so before Um, you, let me, let me kind of remind you what happened. And I have to just full disclosure, don't give me too much credit because I could have handled this better. So what happened was uh, our flight was super early. Our original flight was, I think, supposed to leave at like 637. It was, you know, on the early side, but we, we had to get to uh, the Bradley airport in, um, you know, in Connecticut by 530. And uh, we had both, I believe, basically pulled all nighters. And uh, one of our, our other colleagues who was uh, coming with us as well, uh, more or less what happened was we, we, we there was some, some kind of miscommunication. We couldn't get in touch with them. We I, either they you know tried to take a nap or something. But by the time we all got together, we ended up getting to the airport like five minutes too late. And um, I, I can I just I remember I definitely didn't handle that aspect too well, because when the lady at the counter is just like, oh, sorry, you're too late. You missed the flight. I was I basically went all Dennis Reynolds, like, you know, Greek God on her. And I was just like, how dare you? You can't do this. To-. And she's like, oh, it's too early in the morning for this crap. I can't believe I have to deal <laughs> yeah. with this. So we um she was she was very helpful. She ended up getting us uh, our flights changed to the next one. And we had to literally do a thing where we flew from Connecticut to Philly has short yes, layover. Yeah. Then we then we fly from Philly to Phoenix. So that kind of yep. gets us most of the rest of the way. And then another layover, then we hop over to LAX. And um literally everything had to go right and like we would just barely make it in time. And luckily uh our our colleague uh you know who one of our colleagues uh, is from Southern California. So her dad had kind of agreed to hook us up with a place to stay and um we basically, I just texted him. It must have been like two in the morning his time at, when I did. I was just like, "Hey, listen, we missed our flight. Um, when we land and wherever we're gonna, wh- wherever we land, just you know, t- hit us up and um, meet us at the airport right around this time. And get can you can you just get us straight to the to the arena?" And he he was great. He uh he he got us. You know, we we met him. He we literally changed into our like work clothes from our like you know sweatpants or whatever in the airport terminal and just you know buzzed right over there and yeah we literally made it with almost no time to spare which was pretty wild no it was kind of miraculous like you said it was a cross country trip and yeah i mean i had stayed up the entire night cuz from a personal standpoint um our basketball team had actually won the intramural championship that evening wait that happened and, that was uh, the same weekend yeah that happened that the, the night so we had we won it that evening and then we were uh booked to go you know the next morning so i had stayed up it's you know we had, we did a short celebration but most of the, our teammates had class um but i had just stayed up um and i usually do that for early morning flights but um i remember the whole the the two, uh, three flights to get across the country i slept through you know I think I was asleep by the time we um, got to high enough altitude um, to, you know, unfasten the seat belts. And then I was awake by the time, you know, we landed. Uh, and it wasn't because I played a lot. It was, uh, I think I played probably four minutes in the total, uh, in the whole championship game. But I had definitely pulled the all-nighter. And I remember um, my hair being as greasy as the In-N-Out burger we had after the game. And uh we, I remember changing in the LA, we landed in LAX and it was so tight where it was like we had to change in the bathroom waiting for our ride. You know, Amy's father did us a huge solid there, but I had like a dress pants and my lucky lavender uh, button down that I wore with the black tie of the first round of the Big East, DC, Anaheim, and then Houston uh, sites. And that was like my 
superstitious thing. So I just remember, you know, we just are all disheveled and uh, we get to, luckily there wasn't too much traffic between the airport and Anaheim and we missed some of the game, but um, we got there for the the important part. So it was great. I do recall also kind of like tweeting about it a little bit. So when we walked in and all the other beat writers are just like, you guys made it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, we, we had good seat. We were right down low. It wasn't like we were in any, any auxiliary press seating. Um, so we had great seats down low um, toward the San Diego State bench across from it right by the baseline. But, you know, like you said, uh, yeah, I think they, I don't know what they thought happened, but, um, you know, it is, it is very funny in hindsight. It's a, it's a great story to have. And, uh, yeah, I mean, to do, to Philly, uh, Phoenix, LA, and then to the short drive to Anaheim and be able to see, uh, most of the game, it, it, uh, you know, we came through in the clutch as well as uh, everyone else involved. What a when what a game it was! So why don't we just kind of hop into it? So the first half um, is pretty close. Uh, the first ten minutes, so basically the part we missed, uh, the part we had to rewatch just to kind of make sure we were all caught up on, is mostly just a series of lead changes and ties. Um, Kawhi Leonard has his a big kind of a big sequence right out of the gate. He has, uh, I believe. Um, yeah, he had, it looks like he had a, a San Diego's first two baskets. He had a couple rebounds, and uh, yeah, then he just randomly kind of gets teed up after you know four minutes in, and he uh, goes to the bench for like I don't know a little while. He he did not sit the rest of the half um, for his foul trouble. It wasn't like when um you know uh, uh, Ameka Okafor in the two thousand four you know semifinal or anything like that. He 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 stuck around. He played a decent portion of the game. But yeah, his, yeah, his impact was a little limited. Uh, Kemba did, wasn't actually that good to start. Uh, he starts 0, and, 0 for 5. And yeah. um, then, oh my God, then Kemba just, just it was, it's like the, the perfect Kemba performance. He, he was just unbelievable the rest of the way. Uh, he finished with 36 points and he finished uh, 12 for 25 from the field. So he wound up going 12 for 20 after the you know beginning. He goes four for eight from three. Eight for ten from the free throw line, grabs a you know three rebounds along the way, um, you know four, uh, three assists as well. Plays the whole forty minutes, two steals, and it, he was just yeah he, he was scoring in, at will for large portions of the game. So Kemba kind of hits a couple shots, and uh, eventually uh, Jeremy Lamb hits this crazy three with a with a man in his face. Vern Lundquist just loves it. He's just like, oh, that's unconscious. It didn't hit the rim at all. Just just crazy. That ties it at seventeen all, and that's when San Diego State kind of makes their first run. You got Billy White goes one for two from the free throw line. Malcolm Thomas gets a nice bucket, and then uh, White again. That's a quick five to nothing run, and you you have a. What I I think this might have been the moment we walked in because the cr- the crowd was going absolutely crazy and you can hear it on TV. I, I appreciated how well it came through on TV because if you listen, you're you're like, oh my god, this is an NBA crowd. What what's what's going on here? Yeah, no, I mean it was it was incredibly loud and like I said, the crowd was making a lot of noise from the upper deck. I mean that's where they mostly were, and um, I mean obviously. The first seven minutes, we, we missed the, the worst part of the game. Um, you know, it was almost like a boxing match where, like, the teams are kind of feeling each other out. Neither team uh, started shooting well. Um, Kemba eventually found his groove. Um, and then even San Diego State, like, you know, you have uh, – they had three senior starters. So 
it wasn't like this was, um, you know, a team of Alsorans and Leonard. They had a really good core, and um, those guys kind of helped carry them. Like Malcolm Thomas, Billy White, DJ Gay, they're, they're all seniors who either played overseas. Um, and even Thomas actually played in the NBA uh, for a few teams, five teams over four years, and he had two stints with the Spurs while Leonard was there. So UConn did have their hands full. It wasn't um, a gimme game just because, you know, San Diego State uh, had one star player at all. No, absolutely not. They they uh, ultimately San Diego State did a good job of getting offense from all over the place. They had, uh, I think, uh, most uh, four of their starters finished in double figures. And uh, you, UConn, really, if we're being honest, like, and as a team game, they this was not a very good team win for UConn. It was pretty much Kemba, Jeremy Lamb, and like Roscoe Smith played really good defense. And other than that, like almost nobody else really contributed in a like particularly meaningful way. Whereas for San Diego State, you have, uh, you know, Kawhi finishes. He ultimately finishes with 12 points. Um, three other guys actually finished with more. DJ Gay had 16 points. Billy White finished with 14. Malcolm Thomas had 13. So um, not a lot of bench scoring for either team, actually. In fact, I think UConn only had two points off the bench, um, which is like, really really bad um so only seven for san diego state actually so it's not like either team was getting too much you know this was very much like a you know kind of the start the the the, the main guys were doing their thing um and yeah so when uconn so pretty much right when we walked in the building uconn really turned it around they finished the half on a 19 to 5 run and that run includes kemba knocking down basically back-to-back threes and uh he has a, a great steal and kind of drives to the rim for two um you know, it was uh, it was looking for a moment like uh, it was kind of they had a chance to run away with it. Uh, they really kind of c- closed the first half. Um, they did what they had to do to take the crowd out. That was a big part of it too, because if they let uh, San Diego State pull ahead much further, it could have gotten kind of ugly for them. Yeah, I mean, and they went into the half up thirty six twenty seven. Even Kemba had that like steal a half court and tossed it up. Um, and almost banked in a deep three at the buzzer of the half, which would have even taken the crowd more out of it. Um, but like you said, Kemba, um, you know, kind of took over there, and uh, it definitely helped things going into the locker room with a near double-digit lead for sure. Because, um, you know, between when we walked in the building t- to the end of the half, the crowd definitely was subdued. Yes, unfortunately, it wouldn't stay that way in the second half. Um, so San Diego State, uh, there's basically the second half is three huge runs. San Diego State starts with one where they go uh, 11 and two to pull ahead. So they erased uh, the nine point deficit and they pull ahead. And then you kind of have the two teams sort of going back and forth a little bit. And that leads to an incredible sequence where San Diego State has a four-point lead. They get a four-to-nothing four run to retake the lead after you know a couple of back and forths. And with about nine minutes or so left, um, you go to a commercial break, and you know you're kind of expecting, oh geez, you know here here's the big run for San Diego State now. And you come back and you find out that uh, this uh, what's this dude's name? Franklin from San Diego State. He um, yeah. Uh, he, Jamal Franklin. He, I, he he played six minutes, and his most notable contribution was he shoves Kemba to the floor, walking back to the bench at this timeout. His team just goes on this huge run, and you come back from the commercial, and all the refs are looking at the monitor, and eventually they just like, no, buddy, you, you you're teed up. So Kemba goes to the line. You know he hits two, and then it just 
Kemba just goes to work. He scores 12 straight points, leads a 16-3 run, and next thing you know, UConn's up by 9 again with 4.45 to play. And this scene, this sequence it might just be one of my favorite things ever because Kemba is just like, I'm just going to you know, drive, drive the hoop on you. I'm going to just knock a 3 down on you. I'm going to do the step back move on you. And you got, I'm going to hit all my free throws. And Kawhi, you know, you know, Kawhi does a few things here, one of which was his fourth, but draw his fourth, uh, fourth foul. And it's like, it's kind of very much kind of just being like, y'all got to just watch what I can do. This is, uh, this is my game and I'm not losing it. I mean, it was his best game of the tournament. I think by far, it's almost like you said at the beginning of the broadcast, uh, it's a forgotten game in the grand scheme of things, especially in that run um, of 11 games. Um, but for Kemba to, you know, he, he had 36 points on 25 field goal attempts and four of eight from three. And uh, he just went at San Diego State. He uh, willed UConn to the win. Um, again, with help, a lot of help from Jeremy Lamb especially. But you almost feel bad for Kawhi because – not that this was at the level of like a, a Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, nineteen seventy nine final, by any means. But like Bird did not have a great uh, game th- that night, and uh, Johnson did. Uh, now looking at it years later, like if Kawhi, you know, I'm sure he'd love a do over because with the two fouls early on, not that he sat the rest of the first half, but he ends the game with four fouls. Um, you know, it was a it was a tough day for him. Not only does he get the technical, which they even said, um, and as you said earlier, I I didn't know if that was just um, out of character or if he uh, you know had mellowed during his NBA days. But they said that was his only technical he ever got in his career because um, that's something I admire about him, just his stoic um, disposition. But the uh, even he like gets called uh, in the second half for an offensive foul for hooking Jeremy Lamb with an elbow. He just he just couldn't uh, find any sort of groove. Um, and Kemba, you know, he stole the show. Kemba had all the mojo, and that's why UConn advanced. I, if I recall, after he got teed up, uh, the sideline reporter Leslie Visser did specifically say that it was uh, his first. I think yeah, his first technical foul, or his first unsportsmanlike caught foul of his career, and they were all just like, "Yeah, no, Kawhi is kind of just known as being like a yes sir, no sir kind of guy." So yeah, I, I don't yeah. think he was that much different even back then. You know, this this wasn't his best game by any stretch, but he did have some really some really nice moments. He had a really big, uh, really big play down the stretch, but he had he missed out on a couple of chances that would have really given his team a chance uh, when it counted. So when you know, after UConn made their big run and Kemba just went crazy, uh, they do make a San Diego State does make one last big push. Uh, they go on an eight to nothing run and they pull within one point with a sixty five sixty four with two forty eight to play. Uh, DJ Gay had a lot of big part of this too. He has a a three a three pointer. He actually drew a three point play. Um, sorry, a four point play, but he he missed the he missed the. Um, he missed the thing, the foul, the free throw. I can't talk right now. Jesus. <laughs> uh, Malcolm Thomas, he, he grabs a grabs the rebound, gets one free throw as well, and then uh, Gay hits another three. So there, that's your 8 nothing run. Kawhi gets an opportunity to make a three after that. That would have given them the lead, but he misses. And then on the other end, you have a Kemba goes back at the uh, Aztecs. He misses. But then Alex Oriaki makes one of his best plays. He goes up and he beats Kawhi for an offensive rebound. He hits Jeremy Lamb 
and Lamb just knocks down a dagger. And that was really the game there. That three gave, put UConn ahead 68 to 64 with a minute 35 to play. And then um, UConn kind of just beat him down the stretch. Kawhi makes a three that cut it to 70 to 67, but then UConn just kind of won it at the line. And that was sort of uh, Jeremy Lamb got to throw down a dunk at the buzzer. And that was uh, that was your ball game, 74 to 70, uh, 74 to 67. And um, yeah, just this was one of those games I felt like just you know, UConn made the plays they needed down the stretch, but there wasn't very much drama because even though the Aztecs made their big run, UConn, they, they definitively stopped them. And then once they started going to the line, you knew that it was it was over. Yeah, and that's the thing too, like, you know, it, it wasn't, it didn't have the iconic um, play or moment, but I do think... Um, Especially down the stretch, it was a great game for UConn to kind of seal and put away without having the last second dramatics. Um, when they, like you mentioned, uh, you know, they were up by one. Kemba missed a shot. Um, then the Lamb three put him up four. You know, Lamb got another huge rebound on the next possession, and Kemba got fouled. It, they didn't. They weren't in uh, the penalty yet, so. Um, they were able to milk the clock, and Kemba missed a jumper with 33 seconds. So I think Kemba, I mean, obviously you can't blame him. 36 points in 40 minutes. He played the entire game. His legs looked a little shot um, by the end of it. But then uh, uh, I think Leonard got the rebound and then passed it up to Gay, and that's when Lamb jumped the pass and Lane was 27 seconds left and then dished it up to the head to Shabazz, and then that was kind of – I think there's a YouTube video to like sale by AWOL Nation, perfectly edited, where Shabazz gets the deep pass and waits for Lamb to reward him with the dunk at the end to go up six. The liner three with 16 seconds made it closer, um, but then Kemba hit the two free throws to go up five. Leonard missed another three. Shabazz got the rebound and uh, threw it down to Lamb for another dunk. Um, you know, Shabazz and Lamb really came up big down the stretch, too. Charles Okwandu gave them some, uh, about 10 minutes. Donald Beverly um, got a couple minutes and was able to uh, get a couple fouls, um, you know, which is always a help for a bench guy to do that, um, saving, you know, other core uh, rotational players from getting fouls. And then Niels Giffey got a cup of coffee in the game. But this is this was when Calhoun was really showing up the lineup. Um, these are the guys we're going to go with, and uh, you know I think that's where you see um, the three freshmen starters. But you know Oriaki, a sophomore, Smith, Lamb, Napier off the bench. Uh, those three freshmen uh, getting the big time minutes down the stretch. This is where they had grown up already, and were had grown into their own and um, they were able to seal it before ever having uh, or needing Kemba to make a shot at the buzzer. So uh, I want to talk about Jeremy Lamb because this, he was amazing in this game, but before we do, I did just want to, I did just notice, I didn't realize how little Niels Giffey played. He literally plays for one minute. I uh, don't recall that ever really happening before. He, he's usually good for at least 10, even even back as, as a freshman when he hadn't quite become the player he was yet. So that was that's a little bit unusual. But um, yeah, so let's talk about Lamb. Uh, L- Jeremy Lamb was amazing in this game. So his line is he was 9 for 11 from the field. He's 3 for 3 from the, the three-point line. And like those threes were beauties, like nothing but net on all of them. Uh, 3 for 4 from the, 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 from the line. 
And uh, just for good measure, he tacks on a, a two rebounds and an assist and a block. Uh, sorry, not a block, a steal. Um, only plays 30 minutes because he has three fouls, so a little bit of foul trouble. But, you know, 24 very efficient points. And, I mean, he was scoring at will. And, I mean, UConn clearly needed it. I mean, you know, Kemba, you can't win with Kemba just scoring all of your points. But, I mean, he, this was, you know, really, it was really something to see Lamb step up in a, in a, in an atmosphere like this and to have him get those dunks at the end was pretty, was pretty uh, good to see too. No, this is definitely Lamb's showcase. And if there were any argument for, um, you know, Lamb, I know he was a lottery pick a year later, but, uh, you know, this game he probably could have, left in 2011 and still snuck into the first round just based on his smoothness, potential uh, length. And he's had staying power in the NBA. Um, not surprisingly, he, you know, it's great to see him, Shabazz and Kemba still in the league, but you know, Lamb's making really good money. Obviously he had the horrific injury this season. So we wish him well on that. But I mean, with Kemba starting over five, you have Kawhi looking like he's going to take over the game immediately starting and Lamb hits a three to answer Kawhi's first basket of the game. So Lamb at the very start of the game was hot and he kind of uh, took the pressure off Kemba um, by, you know, being the initial scorer. Um, And then even when you look at, like you said, when the game was tied at 17, I know uh, San Diego State, Went a little, little run, but like Lamb hit a hit a deep three with the shot clock winding down um, to tie it at seventeen. Um, later on in the um, uh, with under twelve minutes left, it's um, Lamb tied it at forty nine points. Um, he made, uh, I mean, I think he had ten points in the first half, but he made a ton of timely shots which is what you need especially in a one game elimination tournament game taking the pressure off Kemba um you know not even when a guy scores 36 points it can't completely be a one-man show um and that was Lamb not only sealing it but even from the opening tip to different moments in the game he just came up huge and whether it be the, a floater or um, I know Shabazz in the second half did a, a really nice drive and dropped it up to dropped it off to Lamb in the low post and he uh, banked it in. Uh, you know, Lamb was showing all kinds of uh, moves as well as just his NBA potential uh, that day in Anaheim. Absolutely. Um, did you have any uh, observations just from rewatching the game? Just any anything a big picture that stood out to you? I think, well, rewatching it with the telecast, I think it reminded me how much I miss Vermonquist being an announcer. Um, that was one takeaway that uh, not only for college football, but, you know, Vermonquist during the NCAA tournament, uh, he was such a great announcer, and him and Raftery, they, like, really do well. Um, you know, they, they, were, they just complement each other so well. Uh, the telecast, you know, I think um, Carl Well for San Diego State, the Illinois transfer had a really tough basket um, where he kind of bullied his way baseline and made a tough shot. And, uh, you know, Raftery, like, says, you know, let me in. What do you mean? um, What do you mean it's last call? (laughs) Insinuating that, you know, I think Raftery had a good time that night after the game, but him and Vern were laughing together. Um, I think the broadcast team was great. Um, like you said, the crowd noise funneled through the uh, TV 
speakers very well, which sometimes, and I think they did this in 2014 in the lead eight, um, at MSG against UConn, Michigan State, it seemed like the TVs had to kind of dial back the crowd noise slightly at some of these really loud arenas. Yeah, you know what? Um, this actually was like the anti-UConn versus Michigan State at Madison Square Garden. Because like in that case, it was basically a UConn NBA crowd. Whereas this was like you had the like is like a like the Boston Garden defense chant going, and it's you know coming through loud and clear. There's no you know microphone work that's going to make that go away. So that was you had that going on, and uh, the I believe that we will win. They they uh, San Diego State's fans were into that. They that was uh, that they were like bringing the house down with that one a couple times. That was a little bit alarming. Yeah, I mean the atmosphere is amazing, and even San Diego State. Um, looking back to like. You know, Steve Fisher, who's uh, now retired, but just kind of the, um, you know, career renaissance he had. And um, not to get too off track, but, like, it, it'd be a great thing if um, Kevin Ollie w- were to have the cr- career arc Steve Fisher had because, he, you know, he won it at Michigan. Um, you know, he took over the team in 1989, and um, Bill Freer, Frider. That was when he took the job at Arizona State, and they debuted Shen Beckler at the time. Um, uh, Ryder had verbally agreed to it to go to ASU, and he kind of just said, "You know, get lost." And then Fisher became, who was an assistant, became the interim coach, um, leads them to a championship, and then um, you know, then Michigan, you know, they get the big time recruits, John Howard, Chris Weber. Um, they don't win it again under Fisher. And then they, his last year, 97, they won the NIT, but they never reached the point of success they did when he was the interim coach in 89, and they won it with Glenn Rice. Um, and then, you know, the, the NCA lays a hammer. Fisher um, dies by the sword there, and I believe is fired by Michigan. And then he kind of is uh, an unknown for a couple years. He's like an NBA assistant. And then he takes over San Diego State, who had like 13 of 14 losing seasons. And he ends up coaching them for, I think, 18 years or 15 years, whatever it was. But, uh, you know, you mentioned they lost twice to BYU during the year, but had beaten them in the Mountain West championship game to go back to back. It was just such an impressive um, resume that Steve Fisher had built at that school, even at the time and beyond. And now looking back, it's kind of. It's tough because I believe that's the farthest they ever got in the tournament under him, maybe uh, in school history, the Sweet 16. But um, the way he built the team is similar, like Mark Fueck and Zaga, or when Eric Mosselman was at Nevada. The San Diego State had uh, transfers, Carlwell from Illinois, um, Thomas was started at Pepperdine, then was at SDSU via community college. Even Rohan, uh, who made it three in the first half, started at Santa Clara. So, like, they were a West Coast school who took kids who uh, hadn't gotten the opportunity. And to go 34-3, and even in a loss, and even though this is a UConn-centric podcast, you know, you kind of have to admire a program like that. Um, You know, it was a very impressive season and tenure by Steve Fisher. And, uh, you know, to go from national champion coach at Michigan – to San Diego State and, uh, you know, do in his second act, do such a great job. It, it's kind of cool watching a game like this and looking and researching on that. He also was the Naismith uh, College Basketball Coach of the Year that year as well. So, 
you know, definitely uh, he, he got his recognition at least. It would be nice to see Kevin Ollie have a chance to sort of have uh, his own second act like that. Oh, I mean, obviously he's, you know, it's going to be a little, pro- it'll be some time before that ha- he gets that chance probably, but, you know, one could oh, hope. I mean, I, yeah, I hope so, whether it be in the NBA or, you know, NCAA, I, I really hope he, he gets it. I mean, that's the thing, like Fisher, you know, like, I know a lot of people like to say Ollie won with Calhoun's guys, but Fisher, you know, Fisher took the team over at the start of the NCAA tournament, and Vern Lundquist wasn't discrediting anything he did. He got to hand it to these guys. I know sometimes it ends poorly, but, um, you know, both Ollie and Fisher, uh, you know, national champion coaches, and Fisher got the second chance at a be- in a beautiful city like San Diego. I- I'd love to see Ollie get his second chance. Um, somewhere too. Yeah, absolutely. Let's uh, run through some of the rest of this real quick because we have another story I want to get to before we wrap this up. Um, so for favorite sequences, I wrote down three. I, I feel like these are kind of the obvious ones. And so you have UConn's ten to nothing run to answer San Diego State's um, early run the, in the first half. Uh, kind of the beginning of UConn's nineteen to five closing run to end the first half. The the beginning of that especially was pretty was pretty epic. Um, then the the sequence where Kemba takes over after the uh, Jamal Franklin technical foul, and then uh, when Lamb hits the three to ice the game in the last minute and a half or so. Um, were there any other sequences that you thought were you know stood out to you? Were those kind of were those kind of the obvious ones? I mean, not really. I think um, you know not to play devil's advocate here, but I think. I the thing I'd like to mention because you know you hit the nail on the head on all the UConn parts I think it again it speaks to the depth of the San Diego State team even though they had a short rotation just like UConn like they didn't get many contributions from their bench like you said four or five starters were in double figures but they only had four other guys off the bench and they had um seven total bench points but like every time Kawhi would go to the bench you know, it's not like UConn went up by 20 or 15 or even 10 for that matter. Yeah, they went on runs, but the seniors like um, Gay um, and then uh, Gay Thomas and White, the three seniors, um, they really held their own and, you know, answered in their own way, whether it be just maintaining um, and, you know, weathering the storm, uh, keeping it a single digit game. Uh, that's what made it a great game because in hindsight, you'd think Kawhi Leonard goes to the bench. You know, the game's over. UConn's going to go on a run and really, you know, and even when he came back, Kawhi, like, I think he went through a scoreless drought of like 9.23 in the first half until the second half. So it's not like, um, you know, there were many moments where UConn, had total control a nine point game and especially in college with a shorter three point line it's within reach so you know to hand it to the aztecs they really stepped up to um weather the storm and pull within one even late and then you know three very late so yeah no absolutely yeah yukon's runs were impressive and even when they were mainly kemba you know it was just it was really cool rewatching that part. Yeah. So uh, a couple of quick stats. So we've covered Kemba and Jeremy Lamb's lines. Uh, so if you uh, th- those two combined uh, were responsible for obviously the vast majority of UConn's offense. Uh, they combined for twenty one for thirty six from the field, seven for eleven from three, and eleven for fourteen for the free throw line for sixty points. The rest of the team combined was six for twenty one for fourteen points. Uh, not not what you want normally, but obviously a seven point win 
kind of it doesn't really matter. Uh, Roscoe Smith, uh, pretty good overall. Um, only five points on offense, but he had eight rebounds and uh, two blocks and was, generally speaking, the guy doing a lot of the heavy lifting on Kawhi Leonard. And as everybody knows, that's not an easy assignment. So it was a good, a good game for Roscoe. Uh, Alex Oriaki, kind of the same thing. He also has five points, but he plays 35 minutes and has nine rebounds, including four offensive rebounds. Um, which was pretty, which was big. Uh, he had the the big one late. Uh, he went up over Kawhi to get the the uh, the rebound to assist uh, Jeremy Lamb's ice, uh, you know, game icing three, um, which was pretty, which was pretty key. Um, any other stats? Do you, you got anything else, or I, I want to kind of uh, get? I have a, I have a, another thing I want to get to before we uh, get run too late. Oh yeah, I mean, I just think Shabazz, um, even though he only had the two points, you know, the six assists, I think. Were definitely a, a big stat to you know go off what you said. Obviously, um, you know Shabazz, uh, and then you know Jamal Coombs, McDaniel, Ros- McDaniel, Roscoe Smith. They were two guys who they're not going to show up much in the box score, but to give that twenty-four and thirty-two minutes respectively. I mean, they were solid. Absolutely. So why don't we take a quick chance to kind of uh, zoom back out a little bit and go big picture. So this was the first of two games uh, in this doubleheader for the Sweet 16. And the game that followed was also a pretty big one. It was you have a number, you have the number five seed Arizona is going up against uh, Duke, uh, who was the one seed, I believe. Do you remember what Duke was seeded? I I don't actually don't have that in my notes. Yeah, um, Duke. Yeah, Duke was the one, Arizona was the five. Yeah, so Arizona wins that game. And uh, I bring this up because there you have uh, a battle of the eventual top two picks in the draft. You have uh, Kyrie Irving for Duke and uh, Derek Williams, who didn't really amount to much in the pros, but he was he was awesome at Arizona, and he was awesome in this game. Had a hell, threw a hell of a dunk down on Duke in that game. And um, so between these two games, you have three of the six players in the 2011 NBA draft who would go on to make the all-NBA team. So those six players are, are Kyrie Irving, the number one overall pick. You have Kemba, who went number... Oh shoot! I don't have the number. It was was he number nine? nine. Yeah, yeah uh, he went nine. I won't. I won't. I won't try to guess the other ones. Uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard obviously uh, has um, you know pretty much been the best of the bunch in terms of like overall career accolades. Uh, Clay Thompson, who actually maybe maybe I shouldn't say that. Clay Clay Thompson has had a, a terrific career. He was at Washington State at the time. Jimmy Butler, who UConn saw uh, twice that season with Marquette. And Isaiah Thomas, uh, who was the number 60 overall pick and, um, you know, with the University of Washington. And, uh, you know, he was not expected to be a great pro, but he's ultimately he's had enjoyed a hell of a career. So between those six guys, half of them are in the are in the building that night. And so we kind of got to see them all. And um, yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of cool just to sort of see, you know, so much of you know the imp- the uh, the players that really mattered in college basketball in the long run. So many of them were there, so it was kind of a, a fun little thing. In one of the kind of nice postscript of this is when we get to the hotel after all is said and done, we have our In and Out burger. We have uh, kind of taken a taken a breath and been like, oh my god, thank God they won that game, or this would have been a a long trip for no reason. Um, you met uh, Kyrie Irving's father, isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, we actually sat down in the lot. Like, uh, I sat with Diedrich Irving. Um, you'd you'd recognize him from the uh, now uh, infamous Irving uh, Nike commercial from last season, where they're playing one on one in the garden. Uh, but yeah, no, he was a great guy. Um, so I mean, it's 
I was going down to like the vending machines or Gatorade and there was a hotel bar and I was 20 at the time, but I was going to see if I could get sneak a beer or two. Um, but the, they were pretty strict. So I ended up sticking with the Gatorade and I was just relaxing in the uh, hotel lobby and a few of the Duke parents, um, which I didn't realize were parents at the time. I just figured they were fans were uh, coming out of the hotel bar and, um, I mean, Duke had lost, I think, by 16. Uh, and Derek Williams looked like a beast that game. I mean, he had a monster dunk. I think it was a putback dunk that you could probably find on YouTube. And it, he definitely looked like the number two pick in the draft, um, even if his NBA career um, wasn't as you know good as his college career. But uh, so Irving's father and I talked for at least, it had to be at least an hour. I mean, he... It was very nice. He played at BU. Um, but a lot of the stuff he said, I, I don't really want to, uh, I don't know if I should burn my sources nine years later because he did, he was very emphatic that he did not want to see, see what he told me that night in my little school paper were his exact words. But um, he wasn't very happy because Irving and the Blue Devils had just been eliminated. Of course, UConn went on to eliminate Arizona a couple days later. Um, but we talked about Jim Calhoun at length because when he was playing at Boston University, Calhoun was still coaching Northeastern. I forget if he was there the same time Reggie Lewis was uh, starring for Northeastern. But he talked about their battles in Boston. He taught. He asked me a lot about myself. Um, you know, obviously at the time I thought like I would be having a journalism career didn't pan out but he was really nice in that regard to um ask about me and then he did go off a little bit i will say not to get too specific about coach k um and even though irving had only played 11 games that year had he you know really made a point to say that Kyrie had um gone out of his way to uh maintain his standing in the team and he thought that had coach k not really favored Nolan Smith as much the senior guard. I think he was a senior. Yes, yes. He, the tournament, they could have made a deeper run. Um, but it, so, in other words, that's basically a totally back. standard parent complaint about playing time. In other words, oh right? yeah, yeah. And I mean, the the one takeaway that I remember him, him, he you know he was very proud of his son. Obviously, the guy he played professionally in Australia. I think he mentioned a tryout with the Celtics, kind of similar to like Calhoun's tryout post AIC with the Celtics they probably brought him in for a workout because he was a local college player but he did say um it's not like Kyrie had the easiest childhood you know he had his mother die young um being a Celtic fan I'm not a Kyrie fan anymore but uh his dad did go on to say how talented his son was and really um reiterated the fact that he was going to be the best player in the draft that um you know if he were to leave that he should be taken number one overall. But by the end of the conversation, um, he, you know, he all but said that Irving would leave for the draft. So had I had a little more confidence or, um, you know, was a little more pushy, maybe I could have broken the story that Irving was going to leave. Cause he basically said so to me that night that Kyrie was going to leave Duke. Um, and then, you know, he ends up being drafted number one overall by Cleveland wins a championship, you know, wins a gold medal, uh, ruins the Celtics and now he's making a lot of money in Brooklyn you stink you ruined the Celtics <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Toucher and yeah, Rich um, it was an awesome thing and that was like really the benefit of having the experience 
covering the team, just kind of the access that we stumbled into as college newspaper writers. I mean, I remember even the next game against Arizona, Mecca Okafor was a few rows up, and I was able to sneak by security and do a quick interview with him. And um, the more qualified and experienced beat guys, and I think even Joe D, a, a great guy and good friend from you know UConn's radio broadcast, weren't allowed to go up into the stands because they you know were more official. But I was able to kind of sneak by the guy and talk to Mecca. Um, Okafor, which was a thrill, you know, having grown up in Connecticut and admiring him. So, like, stuff like that is is a huge takeaway, not only, you know, from a personal standpoint, but something, you know, a memory to keep moving forward. Oh, absolutely. Uh, all right. So why don't we – well, actually, before we, we wrap this up, I did just want to run down uh, kind of more big-picture stuff. So we, you know, we've discussed the, uh, the three guys, you know, who would go on to make All-NBA in this doubleheader. So uh, there were only a handful of games between these uh, six players, uh, and most of, uh, many of them involved Kemba, and actually most of the rest involved Jimmy Butler, believe it or not. So um, you have these games here. You also have uh, Kemba and Jimmy Butler. They played twice uh, when UConn and Marquette played in the regular season. They split those meetings. Uh, Kyrie and Jimmy Butler played each other early in that season, and uh, Kyrie uh, Duke won that game. And I, I should probably clarify, I don't know if Kyrie was actually healthy for that game, but I th- I'm pretty sure he was because he, he didn't he, actually, I'm not going to speculate, but their teams played each other at least. Uh, and then the only other meetings were uh, Clay Thompson and Isaiah Thomas played three times because uh, obviously, you know what they're, you know, pack, uh, I think it was still the pack 10 at the time. Uh, so, you know, Clay wins twice in the regular season, but Isaiah Thomas gets him in the end in the uh, pack 10 tournament. So um, this was a pretty rare and unusual game in this season. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that any of these guys are really thought to be the guys who would be, well, Ky- Kyrie obviously was, but most of these guys weren't like, you know, oh yeah, that guy's going to be a slam dunk, you know, star in the pros. Whereas in other years you have like, what is what would it be? Like the Patrick Ewing versus Hakeem Olajuwon type matchup where you're like, oh yeah, those guys are both going to be in the Hall of Fame. So it was pretty cool. Kind of a, you know, a, a, an, under, an underappreciated in, a game that has aged very, very well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, the, the great thing too, because um, Kemba's doubters, um, and then, like I said in the first uh, podcast, you know, um, even during the season, it was kind of you didn't know if Kemba's uh, size would translate to the NBA, and obviously as beautifully. Um, but Kemba goes ninth to the Bobcats, and then Kawhi was, um, you know, six spots behind him, fifteenth. And the Indiana Pacers, I'm not sure if Larry Bird was running the team then or if he was on hiatus, but they draft him, but do a draft night trade to the to the Spurs. Um, so even looking at them both now, um, and again, obviously being a Celtic fan and UConn alum and fan, um, I, you know, I'm very uh, pro-Kemba, but uh, Kawhi, even though I look at the league through green-colored lenses, Kawhi is one of the, um, and it's, he's grown on me, I'm a big fan of Kawhi. He's one of the few non-Celtic, uh, non-UConn, former UConn players that I really like. Um, but, you know, looking at Kemba's career, the the next NBA season, it was the lockout. So um, Kemba's uh, first season, the Bobcats go 7-59. and 59, And Kawhi lands, even though he's only six spots behind him, in a perfect opportunity in San Diego with Greg pa- or excuse me, in San Antonio with Greg Popovich, um, you know, and two years later after this game, he's, 
you know, losing heartbreakingly to the Heat in the finals and then winning finals MVP with, um, you know, Tim Duncan-led Spurs team in 2014, um, while Kemba's, you know, toiling in uh, Charlotte with coaching upheaval. And, uh, you know, it's tough because it really, I think, obviously Kawhi, he's the reigning all-star MVP. He's the best player in the league without a regular season MVP to his name. He led Toronto, um, even though this year before the season was suspended, Toronto showed they had a great team, but he was really the catalyst for Toronto, but Kawhi was certainly the beneficiary with the 2011 draft, um, as opposed to Kemba, because Kemba, his first year, he had Paul Silas, you know, Celtic champion, Sonic champion, a great great player, and a solid former NBA coach coaching him, but after that season, you know, the the Charlotte Bobcats then, um, you know, becoming the Hornets, they would go through through coaches. You know, they'd be a quick exit in the playoffs. So the once in a blue moon years, they'd make it. And Leonard, until you know the injury happened and his uh, Bill Walton esque uh, kind of you know uh, not released but trade from the Spurs. Um, you know, with the uh, rift between him and the team doctors, Leonard was in a perfect pro uh, organization. So it's kind of crazy uh, looking at how their careers uh, went in opposite ends where their landing spots were in the NBA draft. And now, of course, Kemba with the Celtics, um, you know, which hopefully they'll be finals contenders one day. But, you know, Leonard leading the Clippers to a very good record um, in a tough Western Conference the year after uh, almost single-handedly leading the Toronto Raptors to their first title in his lone season. In Canada, um, you know, Kawhi's a star, Kemba's a star, they're both all-stars. And at the time, not you know, neither were really expected to be. No, absolutely. All right, well, let's uh, wrap this up. So usually the last thing we talk about is who's the top dog? Well, th- this game obviously has a really easy answer, and it's Kemba. I mean, I'll allow for, you know, Jeremy Lamb, but, I mean, Kemba's the guy. So I'm going to pose a different question to you. Was this Kemba's best game at UConn? No, and that's a great. That's a really great question. I, I wish I had prepared a little bit more for it, looking through the box scores. Um, but not only watching it, but I, I think it. I think it is his best game at UConn. Like, uh, you know, you, you could probably point to a couple games in the Big East tournament, um, as well as this tournament run. But especially looking back at the opponents, um, you know, in DC, Bucknell, who. I know they had beaten Kansas, uh, you know, a few tournaments before, and Cincinnati, who, you know, a tough conference team, and Kemba kind of had a, not a vendetta, but like that was his only, like Nick Cronin definitely had a personal vendetta against Kemba, but those two games, you know, weren't as uh, close or tough. Um, this, this was their first, you know, real t- test, I think, in the tournament, and. Uh, for Kemba to not only have 36 points, but on 25 shots, um, eight of 10 from the line, which, you know, I think he was 21 of 21 up until this game. And they, you know, they, CBS flashes a graphic up and then he misses a free throw. Um, but, you know, eight of 10 from the line, this was, you know, the biggest game at the moment and he played his best. And then as you move on, 
you know, Arizona, Kentucky, Butler, there were more contributions from other players. But they needed this performance to stay alive. I think a 36-point game in the Sweet 16, it's tough to argue um, a better game. And even looking back on it now, um, the uh, star power and uh, staying power of the NBA players that were in this game, it's, it's, it's going to get you know, probably more impressive with time. And maybe this game won't be, uh, you know, looked at or scanned over as much because he played incredibly well um, against a solid San Diego State team with one of the best players in today's NBA. So yeah, enough can't be said about it. No, for sure. Uh, to any of the listeners who can hear uh, the squeaking in the background, I'm recording this from home and my pep puppies are playing with their toys so sorry about that hope that doesn't come through too loud uh anyway i i think this is his best game um but i'm going to give you a couple of other nominees uh one his 42 point game against vermont uh which i believe was his career high um there's also his triple double against umbc he had 24 13 and 10 which was awesome um obviously you know the knock on those two games is those were against Vermont and UMBC. So I'll offer this one to you as well. The overtime Syracuse game in the Big East semifinals. He had a similar, a pretty similar scoreline in that one as well. Um, so in that game, UConn obviously won that game in overtime. That would have been the next night after the cardiac Kemba, you know, buzzer beater against Pitt. Um, and in that game, he goes nine for eighteen for the game. So shoots fifty percent. Uh, only two for six from three, but he went 13 for 14 and he had uh, 12 rebounds and a total of 33 points and five assists. And he played all 45 minutes. So to me, this game and that game were probably his two best games in like, in terms of just his overall production and just the stakes, but this got him to the elite eight. And, um, well, well, that'll be a subject for another episode. How about that? Yeah, I mean, it could be, it's definitely a toss-up. It could be a really good Twitter question, Um, you know, because I'm sure some fans would weigh uh, Syracuse uh, Big East semifinal very heavily, Uh, not as heavily as a Sweet 16 win should be weighed, but um, it's definitely a main rivalry game. So it just shows how good, the funny thing too is it just shows how good he was that Especially me when I'm scouring the box score and rewatching these games, I'm kind of looking to see what the other guys do, um, just to have a couple talking points on them because you could rely on Kemba. It was, he had the, one of the best seasons of any college basketball player of all time. It's criminal. Jimmer Fredette won any award over him. Um, you know, it's ridiculous in hindsight that Timmer Fredette uh, got even a vote over him in any it, national it, it, it's uh, more, award. Jimmer Fredette is more defensible than Ben Hansbrough winning Big East Player of the Year over Kemba. That yeah. people people that should was, people yeah. should actually I, go to I, jail for that. I tried to black out uh, that, uh, but it's great. You know, it's just he was so good that you know you look at Lamb's game and he had Lamb had such a great game, but it's still kind of pales in comparison to what Kemba did and that's what Kemba was doing whether it be Vermont or UMBC or Syracuse or in San Diego State you can't speak enough on how well he he um you know 
led the team as well as just how good he was when it counted most. Yeah, I'll actually add one more uh, uh, nominee to the best game. His uh, Elite Eight game against Missouri in 2009 was pretty awesome too. But I think generally speaking, I, I think most people would agree that a game from this season should probably be considered his finest performance because that version of Kemba was almost a different, entirely different player practically. Yeah, I remember you and Kevin Duffy mentioning, yeah, I, I had for, forgotten about that game, but, you know, making the Final Four is such a huge major accomplishment, only second to winning a national title, um, you know, like, that that should probably be his third best game in a way, like, nothing against Vermont, UMBC, obviously, they've had, um, you know, regional and conference success as well as national success in the NCAA tournament, but, you know, like, for him to help lead them to a final four, lead them to Big East championship, lead them to elite eight. I, I definitely think those games should carry a little more weight. Absolutely. All right, Matt. Well, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, this was a blast. Uh, I, I'd been looking forward to doing this episode for a while. Um, obviously we'll have a chance to talk about some of the more obvious great games, uh, but you know how actors have a saying, we'll do three for them and one for me or something like that. Uh, this is the one for us. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I uh, hope you all enjoyed. Uh, we had a great time. Um, so yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Max Cerullo. That's M-A-C-C-E-R-U-L-L-O. Uh, my DMs are open. You can uh, also follow uh, Matt on Twitter at McDTwin1. Uh, good Celtics and Bill Russell takes there. And um, yeah, we have an email uh, set up, yesuconpodcast at gmail.com. So you can... Feel free to hit us up there and uh, five star reviews. Uh, you know, obviously, we uh, the more five star reviews we get, the higher we'll show up in the searches. So, uh, give us those reviews and uh, yeah, it'll help us out. So, anyway, um, yeah, thanks again for all the support, guys, and uh, we'll see you all later.